The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. And with that, let's go ahead and look. We are in 1 Corinthians. For those of you maybe who've been out of pocket, haven't been with us traveling, or maybe you're visitors, thanks for being here today. We are going through the book of Corinthians. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote this. Uh, Corinth was a very worldly pagan Gentile city in the Greco-Roman Empire about 2,000 years ago. And the Apostle Paul was a missionary and church planter, and he was on the move in that part of the world and went to Corinth, kind of like a modern-day San Francisco or maybe even more secular than that. And he preached the gospel and had some followers and began to disciple them. And then he had enough people and established probably leaders And then he established a church in Corinth. And he stayed there for a year and a half. He pastored that church. And then he was on the move. And God had him him go elsewhere to evangelize and plant churches in other cities. And uh, so after Paul was there for a year and a half, established his church, a couple of years goes by, and the Corinthian church began to have some serious problems as a local church with division, division over doctrine and teaching, division over immoral behavior, and a division over just learning how to get along with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it it got very severe, very disruptive, to the point that Paul had to be notified, even though he was about 200 miles away at the time in the city of Ephesus. And uh, the Corinthian church had some emissaries go and give Paul a letter and say, hey, we need help, Pastor. We need to be exhorted, and we have some questions for you to answer. And so in response... Paul didn't go there immediately, but he did send this epistle of what we see as 16 chapters. When Paul wrote it in Greek, it wasn't divided into chapters. It was just one long personal letter like you would send to anybody that you correspond with through mail. And so uh, the church received it and they began to read through it. And Paul's addressing their issues as a pastor, but also as an authoritative apostle, even giving them new revelation probably they'd never heard before. And he goes through for 16 chapters trying to deal with their problems and so we've been doing that we've finished the first seven chapters of paul's letter and now we enter on into chapter eight and so i kind of want to give a big picture of chapter eight today so you can understand it better and put it in the proper context because if you just start reading chapter eight without any context and with a very myopic view concentrating not just on the trees but on the leaves on the tree and not looking at the forest or concentrating on the small caterpillar on the leaf on the branch on the tree Apart from the forest, you'll probably be very confused. And I guarantee chapter 8 might be one of those chapters that Paul wrote where even the apostle Peter said in his epistle, Second Peter, that sometimes he reads Paul's epistles and he is confused. And he's scratching his head trying to figure out what in the world is Paul talking about. This is difficult stuff. Some of you might find that to be true in chapter 8 if you don't understand the context. So that's what that's going to be our challenge and struggle. For example, the first uh, verse says in chapter 8, now concerning the things sacrificed to idols. Uh, I dare say that most of us probably don't have to deal with that reality on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, or maybe never in our lifetime. But that's what this whole topic is about for the next three chapters. Paul's going to be talking about, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. In terms of, that's probably not even relevant to most of us. Let alone, what in the world is he talking about? What sacrifices? Uh, But it was an issue for the Corinthians. 
uh, comes up again. Look at verse 4. Now, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. So this was a major, major issue. So some might read this and think, oh, this isn't relevant. This is boring. This is archaic. I don't understand it. Therefore, I'll just skip this and go to chapter 9. No, can't do that because chapter 9 is about chapter 8, verse 1. Well, okay, then I'll go to chapter 10. Uh, Can't. Chapter 10 is about chapter 8, verse 1. Okay, then I'll go to chapter 11, verse 1. I can't. Chapter 11, verse 1 is about chapter 8, verse 1. So it all goes together. So that's the big picture is starting in chapter 7, Paul makes a transition in this epistle. If you be, by way of reminder, look at chapter 7, verse 1. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote to me. He's making a transition in the epistle. The first six chapters was just stuff Paul wanted them to know in light of how he knew that church and in light of some of their current problems. Starting in chapter 7, he actually begins to do some Q&A and answer specific questions they wrote to him. So in chapter 7, verse 1, there was a specific question. Oh, yeah, you wrote to me about celibacy and marriage. And what do we do now that we're Christians? Boom. 40 verses in chapter 7, he answers that question. Now in chapter 8, verse 1, there was another question they wrote him. Oh, yeah, that other topic you wrote me after uh, singleness and marriage, that thing about sacrificed idols. Yeah, let me clarify that too. So he's literally answering their question to the question they posed in chapter 8, verse 1, and he answers it in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and the beginning of chapter 11. So this is a unit. It has to all go together. Uh, That is the context, and that's how we need to read it. Uh, The specific issue at hand is things sacrificed to idols. This was a practice that went on in uh, their day 2,000 years ago in the Greco-Roman Empire in the city of Corinth. Uh, This has to do with the religion of the day and even social life of the day 2,000 years ago in that pagan Gentile area in the city of Corinth and like other cities surrounding it, because of the paganism and multitudinous false religious views, most of the people were religious and they actually believed in many gods. For the most part, they were polytheistic in their culture. They believed in many gods. They were fictitious gods. They weren't real, but they had names. They had a god for everything. The god of love, the god of wrath, the god of death, the god of the underworld, the god of the skies, the god of the air, uh, the god of safety when you're traveling. And if you wanted a safe trip in your chariot or your donkey or whatever you're riding, you might sacrifice and pray to this particular God of safety. And you might be thinking, oh, that's rather archaic and pagan and foreign, but not really. We have the God of safety today with little St. Christopher on dashboards all over the world. And that's he is supposedly the patron saint of safety when you travel and you literally pray to him if you believe in that thing. So that's kind of the idea. So there's a God of everything that you prayed to. Now, these were not real gods. There's only one God. But the Corinthians, when they were pagans and Gentiles, they thought they were, these were real gods. And they were afraid of these gods. They lived in fear of these gods. We love our God. We love Jesus Christ. But they feared their gods. And priority number one was assuaging and appeasing their fickle, unpredictable gods. And one of the ways that they would appease Their gods was through sacrifices and sacrificing food and sacrificing meat to appease the gods so that they could get a good favor so that they might be able to be blessed in whatever endeavor. Another view that they had as polytheists, they were also polydemonists. In other words, they believed in many demons, but in a very particular and personal way. They believed that there were demons everywhere and demons were actually inhabiting things. And they believed that 
uh, demons were always in evil spirits trying to get into people and into individuals. And they literally believed that one of the easiest ways for a demon to get inside of a person was to get in the food that they ate. So if I can get into that cheeseburger when they eat it, boom, I've got the demon of cheeseburger in me. And he's there to stay for a while. No, really, that's what they believed. So also part of their sacrifices to their gods in their temples was to maybe take some meat and dedicate part of it to the good God to be appeased and at the same time asking the good God to cleanse the meat, to cast out the demons that were in the meat so that when they ate the meat, the demon would not go inside of them. So that was a part of routine. From what we know from history, it's pretty common understanding that, that was really how they lived. And so that was true in the Corinthian culture. So Paul walks into this pagan city and that's how a lot of the people believed. And that was a part of their life growing up. It was a part of their culture, their family life, their feasts, their activities. So growing up their entire life, they were accustomed to this false religion. In their mind, it was true religion. Sacrifices were routine. They were ongoing. They were continual. Uh, they probably participated in many of these sacrificial acts of taking their food that they were going to eat and the meat they were going to eat and going to their local temple. There were temples all over the place, by the way, in Corinth where Paul lived, pagan temples and idols everywhere. And so... Uh, it was routine that they would go take some meat, give it to the priest. The priest would make a sacrifice on the behalf of the sacrificer. And typically there were three parts to the sacrifice. There was a So you give your big chunk of meat, and a portion of that meat was cut off, and then it was burned, gone. That was to the god, the god of whatever. Then they took another chunk, a third. This is kind of like taxes, you know, we have in America. Another third of your meat. And then that was actually given to the priest for doing that service for you. And that's what the priest would live off of. He would eat your yummy meat. And then whatever was remaining, he would give back to the sacrificer. And so the sacrificer would take his portion of meat, go home, and with his pagan family, then they would enjoy their sacrificed meat that was blessed in, uh, in the pagan idol. Now, the priests were inundated with all kinds of meat from all these sacrifices, so the priests had more meat than they knew what to do with. So they would routinely take a lot of leftover meat and sell it in the local marketplace to the butcher. And then the butcher, he'd take it, wrap it up in cellophane, then he'd do whatever, he probably didn't have cellophane, and, and sell it on the market. And then anybody could come by and buy it. And so they might even, you know, you might have Jews, Orthodox Jews come into the local market and looking to buy meat and asking, is this kosher? Was this sacrifice to Zeus or Aphrodite or Diana or Artemis? Or if it was, typical Jew wanted nothing to do with it because it was sacrificed to an idol and they thought it was demonic meat. It had the cooties. I want clean meat, pure meat, kosher meat. So that's what Paul's talking about here. So then you got these uh, pagans getting saved in Corinth and now they have a new understanding of reality and they understand that, no, no, that was silly. I used to believe that demons would enter into the meat and when I ate it, the demon would go into me and I, now that I'm a Christian, I know that's not true. And I also used to believe that statues were gods. And now that I know Jesus, I know that's not true. So I, I can probably eat this meat because even though it was sacrificed to some god, I know there's not a demon in it and it's actually a good choice of meat and 85% uh, meat and 15% fat. And that's, I like that on my hamburger. I'm going to go ahead and eat this meat and they do it with a clear conscience. Some Christians understood that. There were other Christians who got saved. They didn't have that understanding. And as a carryover from their previous life and their pagan thinking, they still believed as Christians that this meat, if it was sacrificed in a temple or to an idol, that it was dirty, it was unclean, 
uh, it would contaminate them spiritually if they ate it. And that maybe even some of these statues were false gods or real gods. Some Corinthian Christians actually still believe that, even though that was not true. So as the Christians gather at Corinth and they're having a fellowship meal at 1230 after church, and there's a whole bunch of meat in the taco bar, they are fighting over, is this clean meat? Is this sacrifice to idols? Is this pyramid? Is this kosher meat? And then they began to fight and argue with one another. Christians fighting in a church. Can you imagine that? Over petty issues. That's what was going on. So Paul has to set the record straight. Now, the Christians who believed that the meat wasn't contaminated from false gods, they were correct. Theologically, they were correct. It's clean. It's just meat. God made it. Be thankful for it. You can eat it. You're good. You won't be contaminated by demons. That was theologically accurate. The Christians who believe that are called the strong Christians, not the weak Christians. They have a mature understanding of theology with respect to that meat. Then those Christians who had a hangover from their previous life and a stumbling block and couldn't get over the fact that this meat was dedicated to Artemis. And I know what I used to do as an unbeliever in the temple of Artemis. God forbid, I'm embarrassed and ashamed of it. And I want nothing to do with meat attached to Artemis. That meat is dirty. It reminds me of my old self, my old life. I want nothing to do with it. So that Christian is called the weak Christian. They don't have fully informed conscience regarding what the Bible says about that meat. It's not contaminated. There's no demons in it. Even though it's associated with your immoral lifestyle before you got saved, in and of itself, inherently, the meat is okay. But they just couldn't get over it. So at the fellowship meal, no, sorry, I can't eat that sacrificed, dedicated, pagan hamburger. So that is the essence of the issue here. I was trying to think of a modern-day example with respect to food. Uh, The best I could do was when I was at college, uh, Westmont College in Santa Barbara as a freshman, sophomore. that's where I got saved, became a Christian. And then uh, there was a believer on campus. He was actually a very good friend of mine. And he used to be a Mormon, and then he became a Christian. And then he found out while we were in college as a sophomore year that the company that catered the food at Westmont College in the cafeteria, it was, and it was normal cafeteria college food that most people found disgusting that I thoroughly enjoyed, especially the rambling root beer, that's what it was called. And you could have all you wanted. But anyway, uh, he found out that the company that catered that food, somehow there was a third degree association of some well-known Mormon somewhere who had an investment in the company because he grew up for 16 years as a Mormon and now he was a Christian. And the fact that the food he was eating at a Christian college had a partial owner who was a stakeholder who was a Mormon, that offended his conscience. And to him, the food was not clean. So he literally on campus began a public boycott of the food as a Christian college and Christian campus, even to the level of the leadership of the president of the college. And he started the Daniel Commission, it was called. Remember when Daniel refused to eat the king's meat? Well, he started the Daniel Commission and asked me if I'd like to be a card-carrying member. And I said, well, actually, I like the Ramblin' Root Beer and the Cheerios. I don't think the Mormons make Cheerios, but uh, I didn't have a problem with it. So... That was literally an issue, but his conscience was affected by the food differently than mine. I was free. I was liberated on that issue. I can eat anything in this cafeteria. As a matter of fact, all the people that were serving the food, they weren't Mormons. Most of them weren't even religious. And they didn't even know who the owner of the company was. So 
they're serving the food and, and all this food. They're just ordering the food from all over different companies anyway. So it wasn't Mormon food. Uh, but it was a big deal. Uh, and it was controversial and it was divisive. But it had to do with this very topic of Christians having different sensibilities about specific things that we call gray areas. Is it sinful to eat Cheerios? If the Cheerios were eventually, if you go all the way back, made and produced by somebody who was not a Christian, whether they were a Muslim, a Hindu, an atheist, or a Mormon, because they were the ones that produced it, is it unclean and wrong for a Christian to eat those Cheerios? And I would say no. No. And that's what Paul's argument is going to be. Food neither commends us or condemns us before God. That's one of his major arguments in chapters 8 through 10. So that was a living illustration that was pertinent in my life. So on that specific issue, I was the strong Christian who had a clear conscience about eating the food. My good friend had a weak conscience in, in that specific area regarding the food because of its origin. So hopefully that analogy helps you because that is exactly what Paul is dealing with here. So a couple other big picture things we need to realize. So chapters 8, 9, and 10 all go together. Uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are actually about one topic that Paul's addressing, and that is the gray areas of the Christian life. And by way of illustration, it's this specific issue of what do we do with about sacrificed foods. Is it okay for Christians to eat it or not? Uh, we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 8 today. This is the first six verses where Paul just kind of lays the foundation and establishes common ground with the Corinthians that he's talking to. By the way, uh, you could divide chapter 8 just into two big chunks. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 6 is the affirmation, and then 7 through 13 is the admonition. Uh, by affirmation, I mean that Paul is agreeing with the Corinthians that, yes, uh, strong Christians, you're right theologically, uh, idols are nothing, they're not gods, and if you dedicate a cheeseburger to it, it means nothing. That's true. He's establishing common ground. But the rest of the chapter 8, he's giving those strong Christians an admonition or exhortation or a command. You need to be sensitive to the weaker Christian who is with you and doesn't understand that. And be sensitive to the weaker Christian. And then he gives an example of his own. In other words, in verses 7 through 13 in chapter 8, Paul's saying, what, you, need, you know, strong Christian? Yeah, you have liberties. You have a clear conscience. You can eat the meat. But you also need to be sensitive to the believers around you. As a matter of fact, you need to acquiesce to where they are weak. As a matter of fact, you need to re refrain from exercising your liberty that you might not cause them to stumble. That's Christian maturity. That's Christian spirituality. You need to be sensitive to other people. You need to be cognizant and discerning of what's going on around you. How your decisions affect other people in gray areas. So the stronger, more mature Christian is being exhorted by Paul. If you want to do the loving thing, the Christ-like thing, the God thing, the biblical thing, the right thing, refrain from exercising your liberty so that you might not needlessly offend a weaker Christian in that gray area of life as you live in close proximity with them. And then in chapter 9, Paul gives an illustration of himself. That's what the whole chapter is about. Let me give you an example. I am the Apostle Paul. I am an apostle. I am an authoritative person. Yet I have refrained from rights actually that I should receive, that God said I can have. But I've refrained from those liberties. I've refrained from those rights so that I might not cause you to stumble, the weaker Christians. A couple of examples. One was that Paul had the right to get paid for preaching in Corinth. And being the pastor. The Old Testament even said that. Do not muzzle the ox. Don't muzzle the ox. In other words, pay the preacher. 
The laborer is worthy of his wages. I labored tirelessly in your midst. You, sh- you should have been paying me. I would have been within my rights to accept the payment but so that I would not be a stumbling block to you and offend you needlessly. I chose not to take a paycheck. My ministry was for free in your midst. And I got a side job or two and brought an income on the side so that I could minister to you without offending you needlessly in a gray area even though I had the right to get paid. That's what chapter 2 is about. So he gives himself as an example. So he gives the command to the strong Christians in verse 9 of chapter 8 saying, refrain from your liberties so that you might not cause weaker brothers to stumble. He doesn't leave it at that. He does the right thing. He says, and I'll give you myself as an example. I've done this. I live this way. I did it in your midst. Follow my example. Deprive yourself. And then in chapter 10, he goes one step further and he says, by the way, if you don't refrain from exercising your liberties every time you want to, it could hurt. you can hurt yourself, not just your other fellow believer. If you live that way, exercising liberty to this, uh, all the time in terms of license, you're putting yourself in danger. You're setting yourself up for failure. And then he gives examples of how in verse 10, so, or chapter 10. So 8, 9, and 10 all go together. That's what the argument is about. So let's go ahead and look at it. Before we dive into the three points that I made regarding verses 1 through 6, just a reminder, so this chapter, you know, we don't deal with meat sacrificed to idols and false gods. But put that aside. We have other issues we struggle with, don't we? These are called gray areas. Gray areas. A gray area in the Christian life is a topic, an issue, a practice that is not explicitly taught in the Bible. It's neither explicitly commanded nor explicitly forbidden in a very specific context. And so Christians have to decide, hmm, is this right or wrong? Christians have to go to other places to find principles that inform your decision. And Christians don't always see eye to eye on these gray area issues. They are not black and white. You mean there are things in life that are not black and white? Yes. There are gray areas. There, there are areas of Christian freedom. Christian freedom is a very important doctrine in the Christian life. Once you get saved, it's a beautiful gift from God. When Jesus saves you, he gives you freedom. When Jesus saves you, he gives you liberty. Jesus said in John 8, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Isn't that great? Or 2 Corinthians says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We have great freedom. We Freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, freedom from uh, the domineering influence of sin and the world, freedom from the law that was so restrictive in many ways. So that's a great doctrine. We need to embrace that. Thank God for the freedom we have in Christ. And at the same time, the balance is, Peter says in Second Peter, don't use your Christian liberty as license for sin. Don't abuse your freedom in Christ. And then Paul says something similar. He says, don't abuse your freedom when it causes another brother to sin or stumble. So what are some common gray areas in our lives today that Christians fight about? Most of these are suggestions that I got from other authors and pastors. Then I will add two of my own at the end. I'm going to go through them quickly. Here are divisive gray area issues. Okay, Al- Alcoholic beverages, diet, what you should and should not eat, cigarettes, playing cards, 
Some of you might laugh and say, really? Yeah. Wearing makeup, jewelry, Really? Jewelry? Yeah, that's an issue. You know, I had another good friend in college who took uh, 1 Timothy and 1 Peter, very little, 1 Peter 3, where it talks about a modest, godly woman basically doesn't overindulge herself with all kinds of uh, flaunting jewelry and fancy-dancy hairdos. And he took that literally and basically said that no Christian woman at any time should wear any jewelry. Earrings, rings on nothing zilcho necklaces nada in light of first peter three and then i was like no this isn't what he's talking paul peter's talking about an extreme and so anyway so he started coming along and okay so then he allowed his girlfriend to have some jewelry so that was good but still he he was weak in this area in terms of his thinking modern day example uh clothing Christians debate about that. What kind of clothes you should wear at church. Uh, what the preacher should preach in. You should be. If he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt, he's worldly enough. The devil? Not necessarily. I don't think you have to wear a tie to preach. Or shiny shoes. Did you know that Jesus wore sandals probably when he preached? Uh, but Christians fight about those things. Uh, clothing, style. Uh, get this one. The car you drive can be an issue. Uh, Tony Campolo, in a sermon I heard when I was in college, at Westmont College, uh, he basically said that if you, as a Christian, if you drive a Mercedes or a BMW, then it's not consistent with your Christian life, and you're acting like an unbeliever, and you need to get rid of it and get a cheaper car. I'm like, whoa. So that would be an example. Where in that area, he is weak. That's not true. Uh, the price of your house, the size of your house, Christians you know, may stumble over that. Ooh, he, he lives in a very nice house. How come he's not living in a shack as a, like a real Christian? Really, we judge people the wrong way. I was going through a commentary. This is like a, when I first moved to this area. We moved from Texas where rent for a house was like 850 bucks for a 2,400 square foot house and like 10 plus acres in the backyard. Oh, wait, I'll say that again. 850 bucks. Then we moved here to our 1,600 square foot 55-year-old dilapidated house in Los Altos that was like 3100 bucks a month. And in my first year here, I was studying First Peter for whatever reason, and I'm reading this relatively brand-new commentary, and the guy that wrote the commentary is some scholar living in, like, Wyoming in the bushes or something, and he gets to First Peter 5, the qualifications of an elder, and an elder is not to be in the ministry for the love of money. And his example was, so if a pastor, uh, pastors have no right to be living in a house at over two to three hundred thousand dollars, and I'm thinking, wow, the house that's falling apart is selling for a million where I live. So context very important. So making that judgment, uh, the length of hair, we judge about that, right? Oh, he's a guy. Why is his hair so long? Uh, or the color of someone's hair, or the way they cut it. He's got a mohawk. Boy, that's of the devil, or whatever. He's got a rat tail. Oh, he must not be saved. Uh, we fight and argue about holidays. True story. I've been in a couple churches. And one of them in particular, they just didn't like holidays. Holidays were of the devil. Unless it was Thanksgiving or Reformation Day. Uh, but that's true at a lot of churches. But I was at another church where they thought Halloween was okay if you celebrated it the right way in a way that honored the Lord. But there were a lot of people that weren't 
cool with Hol- uh, Halloween at all because just by association, Halloween is just associated with evilness and of the devil. And so there were some Christians that very sensitive in their conscience about this. And as a, I was a pastor, and I wanted to be sensitive to the Christian who thought everything associated with Halloween was of the devil. And at the same time, I wanted to exhort those and encourage those who, no, it, not everything about Halloween is of the devil necessarily in and of itself. Um, so I actually decided, should I get into this fight? Should I get in the middle of this struggle? Uh, this could be ugly. Okay, I'll try it anyway. So I, I entered into the ring in the debate, trying to be the referee. And the one thing that I offered is I said, God made pumpkins. And that I couldn't believe how controversial that was. I was like, no, really, seriously. I used to be a gardener for 12 years of my life. I grew watermelons and squashes. No, God made pumpkins. They are not evil. They're not of the devil. It, was, it actually was good because th- those with the weaker conscience, because first just a pumpkin was, ooh, can't see a picture of a pumpkin. I was like, no, it's, it's okay. Pumpkin pie, it's cool. I like it at Thanksgiving. Pumpkins are good from God. Then I took it a step further, which was kind of dangerous. And it was, I don't even think it's wrong if you make a happy face in the pumpkin by cutting it out and putting a candle in it. I was like, whoa, are you serious? So then I think I crossed the line. But I did try to tell him, well, my pumpkin, he's born again. He's a Christian pumpkin. And no, Pastor Cliff, Christians can't be saved. Pumpkins don't go to heaven. And I said, how do you know? But anyway, different story. But that was a real-life conversation with me embellishing a little bit of the details, but that was the nature of it. Uh, We argue about dancing. Um, Dancing, all dancing is evil. Very good close friend of mine believed that. We talked about it, and I said, I don't believe all dancing is evil. And he said, well, it's of the world. It's worldly. And I said, well, what about, like, uh, ballroom dancing? He said, that's the worst. They don't even wear any clothes. So, okay, you're thinking of different ballroom dancing than I am. I was thinking of the ballroom dancing that my mom and dad did as ballroom dance instructors for Arthur Murray because before they got married, my dad was an instructor for Arthur Murray Dance Studio in his 20s, and then there's this pretty girl that comes and she wants to take dance lessons and he's given her dance lessons and she became my mother. And then they both became dance instructors. And so uh, my whole life I was exposed to dancing. So then I go to this place where all the Christians seem to think any kind of dancing is of the devil. It is evil. It is sinful. It is wrong and gyrating your body all over the place and blah, blah. Thinking, well, uh, and then I took one of the people that worked at the church and had, grown, had been at that church for 25 years and I took them to... Uh, the Old Testament passage where it talked about Daniel danced before the Lord. And I read that to him, and they were shocked. And I, why, why are you not breathing? Why are you pale? I said, I have nev- I've been a Christian for 50 years. I've never heard that verse or passage in my life. Really? You didn't know that David danced before the Lord? No. Thank you for sharing that with me. Or Miriam in Exodus 15, after the, the Exodus. And she gets all the ladies, and they're dancing around like this, shaking tambourine. That's dancing under the Lord. Read that as well. Well, not familiar with that. So um, it liberated my friend's conscience to understand being informed with the Bible. Other things we fight and argue about gray areas, uh, sports, Sunday sports. Should you play sports on Sunday 100 years ago? You couldn't do that if you were a Christian. Um, recycling, that's a big one today. Christians should recycle and be good stewards and blah, blah, blah. Uh, styles of music, we fight about that all the time. There are church splits over uh, styles of music. People come and go over church music and styles of music. Uh, this was a huge one. This has been an issue almost every church I was a part of uh, and saw church splits over this, saw people leave the church, saw leaders in the church leave over styles of music. This is a gray area. Styles of music. We've even addressed it here and, and talked about it and preached on it. Um, there are those who say that, you know, 
hymns are the only way to go. Others want, they just want their cotton candy, superficial songs. They don't like hymns and blah, blah, blah. And those are the polar extremes. And then there are entire universities that are Christian on the East Coast, down in Southern California and in the Bible Belt that literally believe that all CCM is of the world. It is of the devil. It should have nothing to do with the Christian's life. CCM, what's that? Contemporary Christian music. CCM. It's a term of derision. CCM. It's not God-uttering. CCM. Well, who does that include? Well, anybody that they want to throw in there. They'll throw Twyla Paris into CCM. It's of the devil. Why? Because uh, she plays a piano and a guitar. And she's singing modern songs that she wrote, not hymns from the 1600s of the Reformation. I am not exaggerating. Uh, I've been in the midst of these debates in local churches. Uh, Rap is of the devil, I have been told. Uh, There's no such thing as Christian rap. So these are the things that Christians fight and argue about. I'd, I'd say, well... I think rap is kind of a gray area because rap is not in the Bible, technically speaking. Uh, I've had Christian leaders tell me that drums are of the devil. I've had debates with uh, elders and pastors and church leaders saying that the electric guitar was illegitimate, worldly, and doesn't belong in a church. And on and on it goes. So these are gray area. Does the Bible talk about electric guitar? No, it does not. So we've got to decide what the principles are that relate to that. Um, the amount of money you make, that's a gray area. Some Christians look down their nose at Christians who make a lot of money. Um, oh, how you express yourself in corporate worship has become an issue and point of contention in gray areas, like clapping your hands. That became a divisive issue, very divisive in the 70s and 80s. And if you clapped your hands, you were a charismatic. And that was bad. I'm thinking, no, I think God invented clapping hands. It's in the Bible. It's been in the Psalms for 3,000 years. Clap your hands, all you people. But... Oh, raising your hands. Oh, don't do that one. Even though, then I don't know what to do with First Timothy, and I struggle with that. Is Wait, if I raise my hands, people think I'm charismatic and they won't come back to our church because I'm the pastor. But at the same time, First Timothy, God exhorts Paul to exhort the church leaders to raise their hands. And then Solomon raised his hands and prayed, and men of God, that's how they prayed. So, But these become... Uh, issues of debate, gray areas in terms of the context. Going to movies. I had that on my list uh, this week, going to movies, and I thought, eh, really? I mean, I've heard of it. But, yeah, I could see some churches that will be frowning upon it, even just going to the movie theater. I know it was a bigger deal, you know, like 100 years ago. But really? I mean, today? And then this week I heard a testimony from a brother in the Lord here at this church who grew up in a church where they frowned upon going to movie theaters. I said, ding! It's on my list. And we need to talk, and it influenced their thinking. It influenced their life. Reading fiction. This is kind of new because 2,000 years ago, uh, they didn't really read fiction. They didn't have time to read fiction, let alone nobody had time to write a book on fiction. They just had to work all the time and try to survive. But the, fiction is a form of entertainment. It reigns supreme in our day, and we've got to deal with it. Read fiction. I know Christians who uh, think Harry Potter is of the devil. You should have nothing to do with it whatsoever. And then I know Christians who, no. No, I don't have a, actually, I kind of enjoy reading Harry Potter. And then there are Christians in the middle of like, well, I, I read Harry Potter uh, discerningly. And then with my kids, we talk about it and see where it's worldly, where it's not, whatever. So there is the spectrum on that. And I've dealt with that and been in that conversation, not just at a church, but also at Christian schools. Um, another area, great area is English translations of the Bible. I mean, today we have like a zillion English translations of the Bible. But 100 years ago, it was just one. It was like the King James, that's it. And then in the 70s and 80s, we saw the NIV and the NASB and then now the ESV. But 
So Christians will fight and argue about which translation is the pure version, the best version, the only version, and they'll rip on one translation and rip on another English translation. I'm thinking that's silly. Uh, Paul did not speak it. Did you know that Paul did not speak in English and he didn't write in English? He like wrote it in Greek. Which English translation do you use, Pastor Cliff? Well, when I'm st- I use the Greek text, so, and I'll use whatever English translation best represents what the Greek says or the Hebrew. So. Uh, that's how I see that debate. Uh, Christians will fight over how you educate your kids. Should it be homeschool, public school, private school? I preached an entire sermon on that. Uh, hey, let me add two that are prominent in our day. Get this. Are you ready? Uh, piercings. Piercings. Major issue of contention in the Christian world. By piercings primarily, it's not just guys piercing their ears, but it's where you pierce. In the nose, in the ear, in your belly button. What else are you piercing? Your eyebrow, whatever. Should Christians be doing that? Where does it say that in the Bible? And then tattoos. Uh, it's probably the most prominent one today because uh, tattoos are prominent and they're everywhere. What does the Bible say about that? So those are just areas where we got to deal with. Now, and so that's why I think chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 are going to be very helpful for us because it's totally practical. It's relevant to where we live in life. But let me give you just a couple of guidelines to help us before we go into the details of how we should think through dealing with gray areas on any controversial gray area there are two parties involved there are strong christians who have the correct theology on that issue and they understand their liberty in christ and then there are weak christians on that particular issue they are not fully informed or caught up to speed properly theologically speaking and usually their past life is influencing how they're thinking about it And their conscience is not clear about that practice. And so the strong Christian and the weak Christian do not see eye to eye on that issue. And you see, there are a lot of issues that you could have a disagreement with a Christian about. So in chapter 8, you need to know primarily Paul is talking to and addressing and exhorting the strong Christian. So if you are the strong, here at GBF, we are made up of strong Christians and weak Christians. So there's something here for all of us. And I bet I guarantee that I read one of these issues was something that maybe struck a nerve with you. Or that made you go, yikes. If that's true, then 1 Corinthians 8 is for you and me. But you need to keep in mind who he is addressing primarily are the strong Christians on these issues. So if you're okay with music that's got a drum beat in it and you're, you're good and you've got a clear conscience about it, but you have a, a Christian relative who really struggles over that, then you got to have a strategy of how to deal with your preference for the drum and your music when you're around them. It's real-life stuff we're dealing with. Um, but of the 30 issues that I just talked about in gray areas, you actually have to take all those gray areas that, and actually divide them up even more, these gray areas. That would be very helpful. Because not all gray areas are equal. They're not. And here are three reasons why or what I mean. Some of these gray areas that I listed, these topics, the Bible doesn't even mention them. There is nothing in Scripture about them whatsoever, not even a reference to them. For example, recycling. The Bible has absolutely nothing to say about recycling. Zippo nada. A couple of others that the Bible says. The Bible says nothing about cigarettes. Taking tobacco, drying it, crumbling it up, putting it into a piece of paper, lighting it, smoking it. The Bible doesn't say anything about cigarettes. Zilch, nada. 
Uh, and there are a few other issues where the Bible just doesn't address those at all. It says absolutely nothing. Then, so that's one category. And there's just a few of those. Then the next category is some of these topics of gray areas are mentioned in the Bible or illustrated in the Bible or referred to in passing in the Bible. But the Bible is gray about certain applications of that issue or certain styles of that issue or certain contexts of that issue or certain developments of that issue. For example, Christians fight about music. Does the Bible talk about music? All over, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible talks about music. I think there's a theology of music in the Bible. And there's all kinds of instruments mentioned in the Bible. So the Bible does talk about music. So it does have something to say about music, but there are applications and contexts of music that are a gray area. For example, the Bible doesn't talk about electric guitars. That's a new development. The Bible doesn't talk about rap music. That's a recent development. The Bible doesn't talk about jazz music. It's a recent development. So that's why it becomes a gray area then. And that's true of most of these issues that we fight about. Music, piercings. Are piercings mentioned in the Bible? Yeah, in the Old Testament, you know, in a different context, a slave would get pierced in the ear so that the guy knows you belong to me or you, you have your freedom or uh, what's her name? Uh, Rachel, whoever it was, got her nose pierced. Uh, that's supposed to be attractive right here. Um, that's in Genesis. So there were, there were piercings, but kind of different in the context today. So there have been developments on that, stylistically speaking. So that's why it's a gray area. And then finally, there are supposed gray areas where Christians tell us this issue should be in a gray area when, no, this is not a gray area issue. This is categorically clear in Scripture. This is not a gray area. For example, some Christians want to tell us that the issue of marriage is a gray area. Now, Scripture is clear. Marriage is between one man, one woman, before God, for life. They are one flesh. End of debate. Some Christians want to tell us that the abortion issue is a gray area issue. No, it's not. It's all about life. God is the creator of life, period. That's very clear. So there are issues like that that uh, Christians want to push into that category or just creation itself. No, it's pretty clear that God created all things. He created it out of nothing. Uh, he created a guy named Adam. Sin entered the world through Adam. Christ is the second Adam. Jesus mentioned Adam. Paul mentioned Adam. Paul taught how sin entered the world and why Jesus had to die for that sin. So you can't just say it's a gray area and dismiss the fact of God's creation in Adam and how sin entered the world because it impacts who Christ is and the gospel. So those are some of the distinctions that we need to make thinking through gray areas that can be very complicated, very difficult, and hypersensitive issues because they have to do with how fellow believers interact and relate to one another. So as we're going through this chapter, I want to give you a challenge before we go through maybe the next two to three weeks going through chapter 8. Just think about yourself. First, apply it to yourself. Okay, there's something helpful for me here. And every single one of us is either a legalist or the flip side would be a, a, a legalist would be the weaker Christian. Uh, and then the other side, the strong Christian in a given area is the libertine. They understand their liberties. They want to exercise their liberties. So every single one of us as a Christian is either going to be more legalistic or more libertine. So first, diagnose yourself and evaluate yourself as a Christian. What, what am I? Am I more legalistic or more libertine? And I think if I had to do the scales, okay, mm, zoom. I'm probably on the lenient side uh, in terms of my, And I think that has to do probably with the way I was raised with a very rigid religion for 18 years. It was very ritualistic and do's and don'ts. And so part of my zoo reaction to that false religion when I got saved was I have liberty in Christ and all this freedom and stuff I don't have to do. Yippee! 
So that might be my tendency. But uh, on any given issue, that's a different story. I might be kind of legalistic on some issues. And then on other issues, I'm more libertine. So you have to kind of have to deal with these issues uh, issue by issue. And, and here's the problem. Bottom line, whether you have a problem with legalism where the pendulum goes too far on this side or whether you have a problem with being um, given to license and abusing your Christian freedom on this side, your problem and my problem has to do with our conscience, how we think about that issue. It's our conscience. We live by our conscience, how we think. And that our conscience needs to be informed by Scripture. So if we're a legalist on an issue, that means that I have wrong thinking. I'm lacking biblical information on that specific issue. As a matter of fact, uh, biblical thinking has been drowned out by human tradition, human opinion, my experience, my emotions. I've got superfluous information drowning out what the Bible truly says on that issue where I am free. And as a result, as a legalist, because you are ill-informed in your conscience and you have man-made religion with all this, you, you are prone to lists of do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and that equates with spirituality for you. If that's true of you, then you're legalistic. That's why Paul wrote Colossians. The Christian life isn't a list of do's and don'ts. And so you need to have your mind saturated with the Word of God to drown out that do this, don't do this thinking. If you're a libertine, what your problem is on any given issue is you have too much liberty in your mind. You don't have enough restraint in your thinking. You also lack biblical knowledge. Could be you have somewhat of a seared conscience over certain things and you're lacking restraint. You also need more biblical information. Actually, we all do. Whereas the legalist struggles with guilt a lot and a prohibitive conscience a lot and the fear of man a lot, the other end of the spectrum, the libertine, they, they're just the opposite. They don't give enough attention and sensitivity to how their behavior affects their fellow believer. They're not conscientious about it enough. They, they want to exercise their liberty too much. They're too self-focused. So those are the extremes, and that's the balance that we have to keep. It's very difficult. So we need God's Word continually informing us. We need the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide us day by day on every single issue. And we need brothers and sisters around us to hold us accountable and to help us walk the straight and narrow. And we all have to do it together because every single one of us struggles somewhere in this respect, of being legalistic or libertine. And Paul's going to help us out. Um, like I said, this, this is important introductory stuff. Let me close with this, and we'll actually get to our three points next week. Hopefully this will be helpful for you by way of summary. And what I'm going to do is just kind of give you the characteristics of a strong Christian on a given issue or a weak Christian in a given issue. Oh, you can be a strong Christian on a given issue. You can be a weak Christian or you can be a schizophrenic Christian. That's me. Ching! Strong on some issues, weak on others, totally inconsistent. We're probably all like that somewhere. But on a given issue, uh, here is the strong Christian. Knows certain practices are not biblically sinful and therefore has the freedom to do it. On the other hand, the weak Christian thinks incorrectly that that certain practice is inherently sinful. Whereas the strong Christian has a biblically informed conscience on that specific issue. The weak Christian, on the other hand, his conscience is tweaked, distorted, ill-informed on that specific issue. The strong Christian 
the area of practice in question is gray. It's not black and white. And it's gray legitimately so. Whereas the weak Christian, the gray area in question is actually not gray, but it is either black or white. And that's where they are wrong. The strong Christian is actually doctrinally correct on that specific issue. The weak Christian is doctrinally incorrect on that issue. For example, um, Tony Campolo saying that you'll probably go to hell if you own a Mercedes or a BMW. Doctrinally, that is incorrect. I, I believe you can own a Mercedes or um, a BMW and it has nothing to do with your spirituality. So I'm theologically correct. But then I, how my attitude towards Tony Campolo as a Christian or anybody else that believes that, that's, that's very important. I can't just dismiss him. What an idiot. No, I've got to realize, okay, he is weak in that area. So I will park my three BMWs elsewhere when he's around. Uh, I'm just kidding. I own a Mazda 3. But anyway, I think that's spiritually acceptable. Thank you very much. Um, the strong Christian is obligated to... Oh, this is good because Paul's going to talk about it uh, in 1 Corinthians 8. The strong Christian is obligated to protect the weaker Christian in that area. The weaker Christian should not violate his own conscience, even if it is ill-informed or immature. Never go against your conscience, even if you're wrong. The, the strong Christian needs to deprive himself of his liberty. Ooh, that hurts. Well, that's part of Christian maturity and Christian love. Out of deference for your brother or sister. The strong Christian needs to deprive himself of his liberty on the gray area to protect the weaker believer. On the other hand, the weaker brother cannot insist on all of his demands being met about every area of life. Well, I'm weak in this area too, and this area too, and this area, and everybody has to cater and acquiesce to this weaker. Mm, I don't think so, pal. That can be very self-centered. And then finally, the strong Christian needs to be patient and allow for the Spirit of God to work and allow for the weaker Christian to grow in that specific area where they are weak. The weaker Christian needs to be teachable and pursue spiritual maturity and keep informing their conscience with biblical truth so that they don't stay in that weak place forever. That's part of the sanctification process. So uh, that's just good practical stuff as we think how we're going to relate to one another now as we go to communion. So let's go ahead and open up. Uh, I want to read a couple of verses for you to, as we prepare and have the privilege to Take the Lord's table. And I want to do that from John 13. It's appropriate because John 13 is the Last Supper. It's where Jesus turned Passover into the first communion. And while you are, t if you're a Christian, you are invited to take communion today. And I want you to concentrate. You can pray and talk to the Lord Jesus while you're waiting and thinking and meditating. But the thing I want you to emphasize today in your mind as you're taking communion is just be reminded that at communion, we are reminded that God loves us. God loves you as a, a child, as a son, a daughter of God. God loves you. And that this is a tangible reminder. God loved me. Jesus loves me. Jesus saved me. And then in addition to that, and because God loves me, I am obligated to love my fellow brother or sister, the one sitting next to me or a few pews over, because that's the point Jesus makes here at communion. He does this amazing act of selfless love, washing their dirty feet. Uh, let's look at it. Acts, uh, John chapter 13. Um, and he says in verse 12, so when he finished washing their feet, taking up his garments, reclined at the table again, he said to them, okay, now here's the truth. Apply the following truth. 
Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, then you are blessed if you do them. So serve one another. I served you. If you love me, serve those around you. Serve your fellow believer. Love your fellow believer. And it gets explicit. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 35. Jesus said, by this, by loving your fellow believer through service and affectionate, sweet love, by your love for one another, your harmony, your unity, by your love for one another, by this all men, the world will know that you are my disciples. They're going to look at fellow believers and realize, man, those people, they get along great. They have a supernatural harmony. What, what is that about? It's a testimony to the unbelieving world that God imparted a supernatural saving love to us. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as you're taking communion today, just thank God for his love through Jesus Christ, if you know him personally, and then be reminded and ask for his help to love your fellow believer sitting next, starting in your own home and then in your own church and, and go from there. That's the true mark of a mature disciple, loving fellow believers with the love of Christ. What a great way to celebrate communion. So let's uh, go ahead and do that. I'm going to dismiss you for communion. The way we're going to do it today, this is our last communion in this facility. Um, we have four plates in the back, and then so we want each section to take communion from one of the four plates. So this section over there, that will be yours back there. This section, that's yours there. This section, that is yours there, and this over there. And so this section, if you could exit out towards the middle, one line, take your communion, and then go back, grab your cup and your drink, hold it, we'll take it together. Everybody in this section, go to the middle, single file, come around right there, and then everybody single file up against the wall there, take your communion, go back and sit, and then everybody over there exiting towards the wall, coming around, and hopefully our flow of traffic will be just fine. So, But let me go ahead and say a prayer to the Lord before we start and partake of communion. Father, we thank you for... This day, the opportunity for fellowship, for uh, worshiping you and just your word, how it is 2,000 years old here in Corinthians and yet so relevant for us today, which is a great reminder that it's true. It's living. And uh, thank you for the privilege now to take communion as we're reminded of your saving love. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.